Welcome to the Truth Be Known podcast, bringing you the objective truth boldly, candidly, and without apology. Welcome to this week's episode. Welcome back to another episode of the Truth Be Known podcast. I'm Nathaniel Jolly. And I'm Eki Tepsapornchai. Well, it's good to see you again uh, this week, brother. We have a really good topic, uh, and, and I think it's an important topic. We're going to kind of go through a tour uh, of ministries in the Bible. Um, yeah, I, I think we're going to tackle um, a, a, a couple of words that have been coming up quite a bit, in particular, winsome, and, uh, and, and kind of related to that nuance, right? And, and a lot of that has been uh, just related to some of the debates that we've been seeing online, especially as it has been sparked by the whole Roe v. Wade and, and abortion discussion. Yeah, it, it's an interesting word, um, and I think definitions matter. So maybe let's just start by answering the question, what do we mean when we use the word winsome? Well, if you, you know, go to the Oxford Dictionary, you're going to get something like, um, appealing or likable or attractive. And, and that's really what we're talking about. And that can be in character or, or in methodology or, or whatever. That, that's, that's what winsome is, right? When we talk about win, being winsome. Yeah. And I think of First Peter chapter 3, which uh, reads, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. So it has the same kind of idea. I mean, essentially, when we are sharing Christ uh, with the world, we, we don't want to be beating people over the head with, with the Bible, throwing verses in their face, telling them that they're going to hell. Though those things are, are true, there is a way to be able to present those truths uh, without, um, with, without being confrontational and, and offensive um, in your manner mannerism. And I think you made a very important distinction there, because what we're going to talk about today is really, I think, what, um, what's what been twisted when we talk about being winsome in our gospel presentation, or you know, some prominent leaders have kind of repeatedly emphasized that, but, yeah. it, but what they've done, and I think what the majority of people would understand that to mean, is if you're truly being winsome, then you're going to have a positive response. And so whether or not you're being gentle, and I would argue that while gentleness would certainly be included in the definition of winsome, it is an in itself a separate thing. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so I, I think there's been confusion because we've said, well, if anyone responds negatively to the way you've presented or uh, the way you've shared the gospel or the way you've given a biblical teaching, well, then you're just not being winsome. Well, that's problematic when we start looking at how uh, people in the different people in the scriptures presented the gospel. And so I thought today what might be helpful in the conversation uh, is if we just kind of browse through three different characters in scripture, we'll, we'll, we'll and immediately everyone uh, will say, oh, yeah, this first guy, super winsome, John the Baptist. Um, right. And, and and he was actually, uh, and we'll talk a little bit about maybe kind of maybe not redefining the word winsome, but understanding it in a in a right biblical context. Um, and then we'll talk a little bit about the Apostle Paul, and then we'll get to Christ Himself, because all of their ministries, uh, and and so of course we're kind of building up to Christ, the perfect example. All of their ministries, if you um, didn't know who they were. 
and you just looked at the responses, you would have to come to, to the conclusion based on what a lot of people teach that they were absolutely not winsome in, in their ministries. Of course, when we look at who they are, right, then, then we have issues saying that because no one's going to say that Jesus wasn't winsome, as it were. Um, and, and so we need to talk about why is there a difference and what should we mean by that? And should we even use that terminology today? Right. Yeah. When you look at each of these situations that Jesus and his disciples were in, you'll see that there was a, a variety of responses that they had to the people that they were talking to. And they did not approach or address everyone the exact same way. And depending upon the situation, some of the words or even a lot of the words that they would say would be perceived today as being quite harsh. Um, and so it, context is important, as is always the case. We talk about hermeneutics and understanding things in context. And, and so as we study those passages, when you look at how Jesus responded to various situations and his disciples, uh, apostles like Paul, um, John the Baptist, um, how they responded to various situations, you, you start to see that um, there, there really isn't one singular approach that you should always be taking um, in general, you, you do want to be gentle, you want to be kind, you want to be meek. I, I would say that that's a general principle. Um, but there are times um, where certain situations may require some pretty blunt words. Yeah, absolutely. And, it, you know, one, one popular guy said, and I'll quote, how do we equip ourselves to be winsome sharers of the gospel and good listeners to our non-believing friends? questions. And, it, it, you know, you kind of have to ask, what is he meaning by that? Um, but so this was Tim Keller. And I think if, if anyone's familiar with him, he tends to lean towards, uh, I think, more pandering uh, to the world than anything else. And yeah. that's not to say that Tim Keller's not a believer or anything like that. Um, but I, I would say he compromises in those areas. And, and so when you read his tweets, I think we need to understand it sort of that that's his tendency, I, I think, to, to be fair. Now, uh, again, I think he has a love and a passion for the gospel. I also see that. And I think his critics often leave that out, too. And I think that's also unfair. But when we're talking right. about dealing with the world, the question in, in asking about whether or not we're winsome, really that one, that word's not in scripture, right? And, and we don't have the exact same definition in scripture either. So we don't even have an exact equivalent. I, I would argue we should scrap that word and we should use biblical language, right? Are we being humble? Uh, are we being gentle? Are we right. being yeah. truthful? Because if you're not being truthful about the reality of sin and hell and death, then you, you actually aren't being loving and you aren't being winsome. Um, you, you can say a lot of things that unbelievers will love you for, uh, but if you leave out the truth of where they're headed, you, you're not right. being truly winsome and you're definitely not being loving. And so maybe winsome is not the best word to use when we're talking about how we interact with the world. What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, the, the word itself, I, I think people will come up with uh, different meanings, and it's always safer to go back to biblical terminology. Um, but I would add this, uh, in this day and age, um, we have to be very careful about what we mean by that, because when I hear winsome, when I hear gentle and humble, it's really a manner by which you interact with someone. It does not, okay, this is very important, it does not mean uh, that uh, you give in to false ideas, ideologies, teachings. It does not mean that you withhold certain truths that, uh, that people need to hear. And in the culture today, 
that is one of the biggest problems that that we have, and especially with these younger generations, um, it's that if you don't agree with what they say, um, they will portray you as um, phobic or a hater, you know, uh, violence, hate speech, uh, those kinds of things. And, and that's where we're headed. And we're even seeing it in the culture right now that, for instance, uh, domestic terrorists, you know, people who are concerned about CRT in the schools are sometimes labeled as, as domestic terrorists um, simply because they don't want those things being taught. And so we have to recognize that in trying to be winsome or more biblically humble, gentle, uh, respectful, uh, gentle, and, and all those kinds of things, meek. Um, you know, we, we want to recognize that it does not mean kowtowing. It does not mean giving in to false ideas. It does not mean withholding the truth. And it does not mean modifying what we say just because the other person despises it. Right. So, and then Peter has a lot to say that the letter of first Peter uh, uh, guides us well in that manner. You know, it, it, you want to be sure that there can't be, um, be be an accusation that is brought against you that is a legitimate accusation. You know, if people are going to slander you, let them slander you for your actually actually for your good behavior, right? Yeah. Um, so they they might uh, slander you, say, "Well, this is what he said to me." Um, well, that's th- those are truthful words, right? Uh, he did, was he violent towards you? Did he call you names? Did he insult you? Well, no, but he said these things. Well, th- that. You know, that's going to give glory to God when we're uh, holding true to what the Word of God says. Yeah, and I think, you know, if we if we back up and we just go with the dictionary definition of the word winsome, attractive or appealing in appearance or character, I, I think that the gospel is, in fact, the antithesis of winsome if yeah. we use the actual right. definition. And, and I'll back that up with Scripture. You go to 1 Corinthians 1.18, and it says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And and so in that sense, the the gospel is antithetical to our understanding of the word winsome. Now, if you wanted to make a biblical case for it, I I would say then you go to 1 Timothy, um, where Paul is talking to Timothy, and I forget the chapter, but he, he says, let no one look down on your youthfulness, and he talks about, uh, but rather in your speech and how you act and in your faith and impurity, show yourself as an example uh, of those who believe. And, and so that's, that's his character, right? And so just to the point of what you were saying, no one should be able to accuse us of doing wrong because of our character. But if we're trying to make the gospel winsome, then we, we need to, I mean, we need to either pick whether we're going to believe what scripture says about the truth of the gospel and how people will respond to it, or whether we're going to try to sugarcoat it in a way to get a response that's just different than what we're told, right? If the cross is utter foolishness to those who are perishing, then in that sense, you can never make it winsome. And so that's why I argue, I think we need to scrap that word. And so then what should we be concerned about? Well, just what we've been talking about, our character, right? Um, to, To give a good example, I think an illustration would be the difference between Someone like John MacArthur, who stands in the pulpit and he preaches the truth unapologetically um, with a genuine care for souls versus some group like Westboro Baptist Church, right? Who just pick it outside of things and they genuinely just hate people. And you see that, right? Um, Two totally different things, although they could potentially say similar things, right? John MacArthur will will unapologetically tell people that if they die in their sins, They'll, they'll be in eternity in hell. 
you, no. you'll hear similar language from Westboro Baptist Church, but the attitude and the way in which they convey it is entirely different. Now, the world may respond the same to both groups, and, and so we just can't um, look at response, I think, ever, really. We've got to come back to what our heart looks like, uh, what our motivations um, are, are we being gentle? Are we being kind? And then we just have to understand that those who hate God are going to respond in hatred, and we see that. And that's not an indication of whether we are being uh, winsome or humble or gentle or not. Yeah, I think of the book of John when Jesus Christ told his disciples, if the world hated you, know that, first of all, it hated me. Um, and so, he's telling them what to expect. And, and in the context of John 15, there's really Jesus um, sharing some extended instructions with the disciples before he's going to be arrested. That happens from John chapters 14, 15, and 16. Then you have the high priestly prayer. In 17 and 18, he's uh, he's arrested uh, by the Roman guards. Um, but that that's the final message that Jesus is going to share with his disciples before his crucifixion. And really, when I look at the, the, the totality of what's being said there from 14 to 16, what I believe Jesus Christ is doing, he's preparing them for the Great Commission, right? So, in, in the book of Matthew at the very end, when he says, go and, and make disciples of all the nations, uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, um, I believe the backdrop to that is basically all that he had taught them in the upper room, bringing them back to mind, plus what he shared with them on, on the road to Emmaus. So, it's about sharing the truth about Jesus Christ. And when Jesus says the world is going to hate you, remember how the world responded to Christ, right? And, and Jesus came and he brought the truth. And, and often the, the truth did not attract people, it actually drove people away. So, we understand as you to, to the point that you are making that the gospel itself um, is not going to be attractive to the natural man. In fact, I'm looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 15, where Paul writes, for we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. But uh, to the one an aroma from death to death, to the other an aroma from life to life, and who is adequate for these things. So we preach the gospel, and it's going it's to sound or, or smell like death to, to people that hate it. Um, but to those who embrace it and understand it, it's, it's going to smell like life. And so, yeah, the, the gospel is offensive. And, and to your point, when you read um, the definition for winsome, it's having a kind of an attractiveness or an appeal to the world. And, and this very much sounds like seeker sensitive kind of philosophy of ministry right yeah um, now absolutely. we're not saying we're we are not saying that everyone who uses the word winsome is is seeker sensitive in their philosophy right. but we do have to recognize that while we want to be gentle and humble and kind and and reverent um that that's not the same thing as being seeker sensitive seeker sensitive means to do whatever we can in order for them to to accommodate us or to, for them to like us or, or something to, to that uh, that extent. And we, we know, and then a lot of this goes back to the depravity of man. We just know that in the nature of man, they, they hate God. They do not seek God. They have all turned aside. Together, they become useless. And so, if they hate God and they receive a message of God, they're going to reject it um, yeah. without, uh, without the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit in their heart. Yeah. So, quite literally, it is impossible to be winsome to those who are still children of wrath, as Ephesians 3 uh, I think it's two or three talks about, right? And, yeah. and so, I, I, let's just look at a couple of these guys. I mean, John the Baptist. Um, I, I mean, these are all faithful characters in Scripture, and so no, I don't think anyone could argue that, right? So, you get John the Baptist, and in Matthew 3, uh, the first couple uh, 
passages there. It says, now in the, those days, John the Baptist came preaching love and happy tidings and let's all get along. Right yep. now, that's of course not what he says. He came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, "Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand." And I think um, today, if you preach a message of repentance, whether you literally use the word "repent" or you call people to um, to turn away from their sins, that is not in our society a an acceptable likable winsome message it's just not yeah and and this is um this is one of the areas where um, i'm often very critical of the evangelical church at large um, that over time the gospel message has been watered down Uh, and the proof of that you just go to most churches and you don't hear them preaching about sin and repentance uh most people when uh, most churches and, and preachers, unfortunately, when they do bring up the gospel, they don't talk about sin. They, they simply talk about Jesus Christ. They may say Jesus Christ died for your sins, but without really talking about what sin is in the first place, or really doing the work to convict um, the, the hearers that they are indeed sinners. And then repentance, um, repent and believe, right? Um, yep. John the Baptist in Matthew chapter three, he starts off his ministry by saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew chapter four, after Jesus Christ, Christ uh, goes through the temptation. He starts his ministry and says the same thing, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And for people that think repentance is really just an Old Testament idea, well, the very first sermon um, after Jesus Christ ascends up into heaven is on the day of Pentecost. And what does Peter do after the the hearers are are pierced to their heart and they say, brothers, what shall we do? What does Peter say? He says, repent um, and, and, uh, and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. So repentance, and also I'm thinking also of Acts chapter chapter 17, when the Apostle Paul is in Athens, and, and he's speaking to these Greek philosophers and whatnot. And, and he says in Acts chapter 17, either verse 30 or 31, he says, God is calling all men everywhere to, to repent. Um, he has overlooked the times of, um, of ignorance, and he's now calling everyone to, to repent. And that, that was to the Gentiles. So, it's not it's not merely just a Jewish concept. It's not something that's just tied to the Old Testament. And it's certainly not something that is just a change of mind, because I think if you do a study of that word and look at the context and how it's used, um, a change of mind is, is accompanied with a change in action and behavior. Yeah. And they would have understand that. And I think that's an important point. Uh, when we talk about the word repent today, uh, we, and, and someone may have the thought, well, you know, it, it's an outdated term. They, that wouldn't have been very offensive to them. But I, I think just if you, as you've said, when they would have heard the call to repent, what they're hearing is that they're not good enough and they have to be something else, right? They, they need to stop what they're doing. They've got to make a change. They're inadequate. They're deficient. They're deformed. Yeah. Um, and, and they would have understood that. And that would have been offensive, Right. Um, who you are isn't good enough. And that certainly is an offensive message today. Yeah. And, and, right. and it's not. Uh, and, and then even beyond that, when you, you know, when you get into the gospel, you discover that it not, not only are you not good enough, are you inadequate, are you deficient, but there's really nothing you can do to change that. And, and so you need Christ. Um, you, you, you need Christ's forgiveness. You need the substitutionary atonement. You need the righteousness of Christ imputed to you. I mean, this is what they would have understood when they hear the call to repent, 
right? Yeah. To be changed. And, and that's still the same message today. And that is not an attractive message for those who hate God. Um, right. Yeah. And then John the Baptist, you mentioned John the Baptist. Uh, at, at some point, he refers to the uh, kind of this, uh, this team of people sent by the Jewish leaders. Um, he, he says to them, you brood of vipers, um, who, who told you to, uh, to, to escape the wrath to come? But he goes on to say um, that you need to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Um, bear fruit. Uh, so, obviously, repentance by itself uh, you, you can't you, you can't separate that from this idea of bearing fruit. But let me read for you also, and, and I know we've got other passages to look at, but uh, important picture from the Old Testament, Jonah chapter three, Jonah goes to the Ninevites and, um, and the Ninevites, uh, obviously this is the capital city of the Assyrians, um, wicked, wicked people that in that day and age, if you would have picked out a people that you would have said are the most God-hating people around, it would have been the Assyrians. And so, the capital city of Nineveh, Jonah is sent there. He didn't want to go there initially, but he says in Jonah chapter 3, verse 4, he has this message, yet 40 days in Nineveh will be overthrown. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God. They called a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. And when the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. This is a symbol of mourning. All right, verse 7, he issued a proclamation, and it said, in Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. Both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. Let them call on God earnestly, and that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. So even in that picture, the wickedest of wicked people, the king at that time was calling upon the people to turn from their wicked ways. And then verse 10, when God saw their deeds, okay, when he saw their deeds, not yeah. merely just heard their words, not merely just saw the sackcloth and ashes, but when he saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them. And he did not do it. So, very clear picture, and especially when you consider that these were the most wicked of Gentiles in the eyes of the Jews. In fact, Jonah didn't even want to go there. And what's interesting in chapter four, the reason why he didn't want to go, because he knew God was going to save them. He said, yeah. I, know, I know you're gracious. I know you're full of loving kindness and all this kind of stuff. And I knew this is what was going to happen. And really what he's implying by that is that they didn't deserve it. Yeah, but I mean, you see a very clear picture of repentance there. Yeah, and and Jonah, I mean, what what a winsome message. Repent or die. Right, that's right. Yeah, 40 days in Nineveh will that, be overthrown. I mean, that was his message. Repent yeah. or die. Um repent or be destroyed, you know? And and yet uh the the truth of that, because it was God's message, brought a whole nation, at least for a season, to repentance. Now they did end up getting destroyed later on, but but I and I think I think uh, part of the problem in modern evangelicalism is well, one, we don't believe in the power of the Word of God anymore. Um, it, you know, pragmatism has destroyed much of the visible Western church. Uh, and, and I think ultimately that's what the idea of needing to be winsome is. It's just another pragmatic way to build the church. Um, but you're going to build the church with goats that way, um, and people are going to get saved to something that makes them feel good, that they agree with, but they're not going to get saved from 
something, which is their sin. And, and yeah. so then we have all kinds of issues in the church, and we wonder why, and this is part of the reason why. Um, but it, that passage you brought up about John, so that's in Matthew 3, 7. Let, let, let me just read a couple yeah. of those passages. I mean, we're talking about uh, you know being called to be winsome and, and whatnot. Listen to this. So it says, but when he saw, he being John, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you offspring of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance, and do not assume that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham, and the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is being Mm -hmm. cut down and thrown into the fire. Wow. Right there. Every tree that does not bear good fruit. In other words, start bearing good fruit um, that consistent with repentance. Yeah. I mean, this is a right biblical message. And if you, I mean, if you, in in a right modern context, shared this message with people, you would be shunned by much of the evangelical church today as being hateful and a bigot and unloving um, wow. and et cetera, et cetera. And, and I think here is what's very interesting to me, because oftentimes um, people will say, well, he was only harsh to the Pharisees and, and the Sadducees. So were, were they not souls that we care about too? Right. I, I mean, we, we, we tend to almost pull the Pharisees and Sadducees outside of humanity. Uh, we, we almost tend to forget that, that they're still made in God's image right. who will either spend eternity in heaven or hell. And so we can just write off the hard words to them as being something other, but that's not true. Um, and, and so it, John, John the Baptist was, and, and okay, so there's the Pharisaic example. Well, I want to give another one because it, just in case people might say, well, those were the religious leaders, despite the fact that I think it's pretty terrible, you assume they're not real people. Um, but what about Herod? Because he yeah. definitely was not a religious leader. Right. I mean, he just would have been a secular unbeliever if we were to compare him to today. And, um, you know, Herod really loved John and protected him all the time. Right. That, that's what happens to you know. <laughs> Um I, I mean, it, lest anyone forgets. Right. John uh, in Mark chapter six, John had been telling Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Yeah. So, I, I mean, this is the magnitude of boldness here is mind-blowing because here is a king in a time period where if you just looked at the king wrong, he could have you executed. And here's John the Baptist just straight up telling him, you cannot do that. It's wrong. It's sinful. You can't do it. Opposing the king, right? And this is in a public opposition. I mean, people know this thing. And so he's saying, you can't have your brother's wife. And then Herodias held a, a, a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but he couldn't do so because Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and he had been protecting him. And when he heard, he was very perplexed, and yet he used to enjoy listening to him. So here's interesting. He used to enjoy listening to John. John confronts his sin, and now he wants to put him to death. Yeah. 
right? Not very winsome, John the Baptist, uh, at least we would say today. And of course, we know how that all plays out, right? Ultimately, John's executed. I I mean, he's not just executed. He's beheaded and, and, and in a sick, twisted way, put on a physical platter and brought before I, I mean that if, if this is why we can't and we shouldn't tell people that the goal is to be winsome yeah um uh, or you have to say John the Baptist was unbiblical and wrong in in the ways he did things you know I would also add John the Baptist kind of challenges the popular notion that we should never confront the world in its sin Right. Yeah. Just absolutely. preach the gospel. Don't don't confront them in their sin. But that's exactly what John the Baptist did. And and of course, we, we know he was beheaded. That was actually because of a request because of uh, I think it was um, um, Herod's daughter. Yeah. Um, but he was arrested because of that. He was taken out out of his ministry and arrested uh, for confronting uh, the, the king that way. But the king was afraid of him. <laughs> the, the king was afraid of him. And it wasn't until that uh, he, he promised to give, um, I believe, his daughter any request uh, she wanted. And she's the one that requested, OK, I want John the yeah. Baptist's head on, on a platter. Um, but, yeah, that, that's not, um, you, you know, John the Baptist would, uh, would get an F grade today in terms of um, his quote-unquote winsomeness and, uh, and nuance and, and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, so, we have John the Baptist, right? Um, and we, we see that he was very bold and, and he proclaimed the, the truth straightforwardly, and that's fine. He's not the only one in Scripture. Let's kind of move on to the Apostle Paul and uh, quickly, and then we'll get to Jesus himself. I mean, Paul's another one, right? Um, and so we we have an apostle here who began as a murderer himself, persecuting Christians. He gets saved. He has the Damascus Road experience, and Christ tells him, you know, I'll show you the things that you're going to have to suffer for my sake. Uh, that's very interesting because that flies in the face of a lot of modern day evangelicalism, the idea of having to suffer for your faith. Yeah. Um, but that that aside, so Paul begins his ministry, and I, I mean, very quickly. Paul finds himself in situations where people are trying to kill him. And, and I like to just ask folks the question, um, is, is that the response of winsomeness <laughs> you, that people are trying to kill you? And it didn't just happen once or twice. I, I mean, it happened quite frequently. I mean, so you go to Acts 9. I mean, there's lots of places, right? You can go to Acts 9. And it says that um, for several days, Paul was with the disciples who were in Damascus and he began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues. Now, let me just stop right there. For those who don't understand the significance of Paul preaching Jesus in the synagogues, right? I mean, this is like going to one of the most known hostile places he could possibly go to, uh, and, and he's going to preach Christ there. And so, he's already going into a hostile environment, and he knows that. So, he's preaching, saying he's the Son of God. I'm in Acts nine nineteen. Um, all those hearing him continue to be amazed and were saying, is this not the one in Jerusalem who destroyed those who called on this name and had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? So Saul here kept increasing in strength and confounding Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. Now, here we go. When many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him. Yep. But but their plot became known. They were closely watching the gates by day and night to put him to death. I mean, 
They're on lookout. His message was so incredibly winsome that they have people staked out yeah. so that they can murder him. Yeah, and, and that, that ends up being, and, and that didn't go away. So this is before Paul goes on his uh, first missionary journey. He's, yeah. he's barely just saved, and, and this is his testimony. And someone might argue, well, Paul learned winsomeness later. Well, by his third missionary journey, the reason why he appeals to Caesar is because he's got a bunch of Jews that want to, to kill him again. But, but I love in Acts chapter 9, I often tell this story as well. When you, when you get to the end of that chapter or, or towards the end of that section, uh, basically the, the brothers um, basically deliver him from that situation because they want him to, to die. And, um, and verse 30 says, when the brethren heard of it, they brought him down to Caesarea, sent him away to Tarsus. And, I, and verse 31 always makes me laugh. This is Luke writing it. And he said, so the church throughout Judea and Galilee, Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit and con- continued to increase. So it was very funny that, that Luke would write, once Paul left, then they enjoyed peace. Because <laughs> he was such a fireball, right? I mean, he's such a fireball and, and just just really confronting people about their unbelief. And, uh, and, and we, we see that same energy in him in his letters too, right? Yeah. So uh, Galatians, uh, especially Galatians, um, I believe was probably his first letter that, uh, that he wrote. And, and that was addressing the churches in the area that he covered his, in his first missionary journey. And, uh, and basically in Galatians chapter one, um, verses uh, eight and nine, he says, look, if anyone comes to you, giving to you a gospel, contrary to what we have proclaimed to you, he is to be a and, and he says, let me say it again, even if someone from heaven comes and gives you a gospel contrary to what we have given to you, he is to be accursed. And that word accursed is, is condemnation, all right? That's consigned for, for judgment. Um, so, so those are indeed um, harsh words. And we're not saying that this is the norm, that, that this, in other words, we don't say that when you're going and sharing Christ that you start off uh, with those kinds of words of judgment. Right. But what we are saying is that there are occasions where it's going to be appropriate depending upon the response. Yeah, and even even more than that, we need to exercise wisdom, but we just can't judge based on response, right? Uh, I mean, however we're judging ourselves no. and our actions, it can't be based on response, which means you can't be looking to be winsome because you're trying to get people who hate the gospel to be attracted to the very thing Scripture says they'll be hated, uh, that, that they'll hate. And so, you go to 2 Corinthians, and, and we have this huge list of the Apostle Paul. Just, I mean, he's, he's so oozing with winsomeness that um, he, he's recording all of the parties and the welcoming uh, invitations that he's gotten. And in 2 Corinthians 11, he starts by saying, um, he's defending his apostleship, and he says, I'm more so in far more labors and far more imprisonments, beaten no. times without number, often in danger of death. I, I mean, this is the Apostle Paul. This is characterizes his ministry. Five right. times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Five times. Yeah, I mean, this is right. right. Th- th- that would have been no insignificant beating. And, and not only that, he says, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times shipwrecked, a night and the day I've spent adrift at sea. I've been on frequent journeys and frequent dangers from, you know, the weather and things like that. So that's fine. Uh, robbers, dangers from his countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in cities, dangers in. I, I mean, I'm just not sure how you can look at uh, the definition of winsome and decide that that's what our ministry should look like. 
because we don't yeah. see that anywhere in scripture. Right. And if you so if you take that modern definition and, and try to overlay it over all these instances that we see both with Jesus as well as his apostles and disciples, you're, you're going to struggle. Now, <clears throat> I said something and you said something that, that the listener might say sounds contradictory because I said that the way, uh, you, you know, we, we don't start off in a harsh tone with everyone. Um, yep. That may be appropriate depending upon the response. And then you said something that I agree with also is that we can't, we can't dictate um, our approach based on response. And then what you meant by that is that we don't start off with simply just trying to win them over, right? Um, that's not our motivation. Yeah. Um, we're, not, we're, we're not tailoring our message so that we'll get a good response. Um, but we start off by sharing the gospel. We want to do it in a humble, gentle, reverent manner. And depending upon how they respond to it, um, it may be appropriate to, to use uh, more direct words and, and more blunt language. You know, so if, if, for instance, I'm talking to someone who is um, is open, he, he's willing to talk about it, he's willing to carefully consider what the gospel is, willing to do some research, you know, I, I'm not going to breathe um, hellfire and brimstone on him, right? Yeah. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to work with him and, and help him to understand and to see. And then there are others, and a great example would be um, atheists, and this is not all atheists, some atheists are, are very nice and, and very gentle people, but um, but there are some atheists who are actually very hostile uh, against the Christian message, and uh, and it's not enough that they can simply just say I don't believe in God. They they actually make it some of them, not all of them. After they actually make it almost their life mission to persecute everyone who believes in God, yeah. and so they'll mock the faith. Um, they'll they'll bring up all kinds of straw man arguments, and there are times where I'll have to tell them, look. Um, this conversation is done. We're not going anywhere else. And unless you repent of your sins, you're going to hell. You know, yeah. so I'll, I'll be more blunt uh, in those kinds of cases. And then in cases where we have false teachers, right? So, I mean, you've got the Benny Hins out there. You've got the Joel Olsteins. I have no problems calling them out and calling them heretics, right? Yeah. Because these are people that are perverting the word of God and and preaching essentially a false gospel. And, and so the approach is not going to be the same in every situation. It's going to depend upon who it is that we're addressing. But to your point, we preach the message knowing that in the natural hearts of man, they're going to reject it. They're going to hate it. They may even persecute us for it. And we have to be willing to take it. Yeah. And I think, you know, again, the difference here is we're talking about what, what, what we're mandated as Christians to, to be and to do is to function out of godly character. And, yeah. and godly character is never defined by the world's response, right? Um, godly character is defined as, as scripture, you know, defines it. And, and so you go to Colossians 3.12, and I, I would argue that everyone in scripture, uh, John, the apostle, and certainly Christ operated out of this, although sometimes the words were hard. And so Colossians 3.12 says, so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Those are character qualities, and it has nothing to do with um, someone's response. And so, if uh, we're proclaiming the gospel to someone, if we're working through, you know, if you're going through Romans Road or what, whatever it is, it, you know, you're you're using to share the gospel plainly and clearly. You, you can do it gentle, and if that gentle in a gentle way, um, and, and if the person turns hostile. We don't then say, oh, I must not have been gentle enough because they're hostile. No, that's not how we define that. Um, and, and so that's really what we're talking about, not letting the world dictate um, and define biblical character. 
right? Based on their response. And so, again, I absolutely agree with you. We're not saying we should be harsh. And I used Westboro Baptist earlier, um, but because I, I, I mean, they're just a prominent example of, you know, guys that I think right. are, you know, they're just totally lost, right? Um, and, and yet we see these uh, folks in scripture, John the Baptist, the Apostle Paul, who are saying very strong things. And, and yet we see, or, or like Jonah, right? Entire nation comes to repentance and his message was repent or be destroyed. Um, that's not a very warm, fuzzy message, but no. you know what? It was an extremely loving message. Huh. Now with him, it's interesting because it wasn't loving on his part. Uh, because I think it was the message itself, right? It it was the message itself loving on God's part. Um, and and so, yeah. And so we, we've got to pull back and, um, just because someone is offended, can't all of a sudden decide we're not being godly or biblical. Um, if we're ruled by people's emotions, you're going to be a total and utter wreck. You're, you're also going to end up hiding under a rock and being unfaithful, uh, because Jesus, who was the kindest, most gentle, most loving, most perfect man in the world, was crucified by people hating him. And if he couldn't win the world to himself in, the, in that sense, then what makes us think we're going to do that? Um, right. e- even with all the admonitions in Scripture and the teachings of Scripture that tells us, you know, the world hated me, they're going to hate you too. We shouldn't look for it. We shouldn't want it. Um, and so all of this, I think, is really born out of uh, godly character and a right heart. And so I, I, think, I think the way we would judge ourselves, and you can speak to this, would be, a- am I proclaiming the gospel because I genuinely want to see souls saved? A- right. Am I telling them the hard things because I want them to know the love of God through Christ and his work and his person? Um, it, and, and that's how we, we would judge that rather than their response. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, just to give an example, um, recently um, I've met with a couple of young men who are sons of people that go to uh, my, our, the church that I pastor at. And um, both these two sons um, identify as homosexuals. Now, they came in to talk to me about something else, not about their lifestyle. They, um, I, I, I knew about it from the parents, but I didn't know about it directly from them. They hadn't told me that. So, they came in, met with me. Um, we, we were talking about various issues, and then they decided to bring it up. They said, well, pastor, um, we're also um, homosexuals. Um, what do you make of that? And so, I took them to the scriptures. I showed them that First uh, Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, that uh, the, those who engage in such activities will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so, I said, well, the, the Bible is actually quite clear on these things. But um, as I was talking to them, I was appealing to them based upon the truth of scripture. And what was interesting, I told them, I said, look, you know, sharing these truths, when I share these truths. I know a lot of people in the world will um, accuse me of being hateful, um, of being unloving, um, being violent with speech and all that. And and one of these two young men um, surprised me. He, He said, well, pastor, if people are saying that about you, it's because they have not had the chance to sit down and actually talk to you, because that is not true. He's like, even though even though they didn't repent and even though they didn't like the position that I took in scripture, um, they were able to say that 
Pastor, we can see from from the way you're talking to us that um, that you are not hateful, you are not uh, violent, you are not, you know, all these things that that people might say. And and that was um, that was a moment of grace uh, from God. And I still pray for their repentance, even more importantly than that. Um, but I, I think that's exactly what we're striving for. We want to still be able to present the truth, knowing that if they're going to bring an accusation against us, they're going to bring an accusation against us because we're speaking the truth, not because of the way we're pre- presenting it, or not because of our um, attitude or, or um, you know, being rude or, or anything, anything like that um, against them. So, we, we do want to be mindful of, of um, how we do things, but we don't want to cut them off. You know, the other thing that came to mind, and I'm just going to throw this in there, I'm, I'm thinking of church history. And when I think about the, there was the first Great Awakening and there was the second Great Awakening. And if you ever do a study on church history, you'll, you'll notice that there were very distinct differences between the two. Yeah. Because in the second Great Awakening, you had the introduction of metrics, uh, of measures, kind of the new measures. And, and basically, this is where methods start to come into play. And, and people were having these big tent uh, revival meetings, and they wouldn't even allow people to leave um, until they have confessed Jesus Christ as Lord. So, in essence, they were trying to coerce worse people into confessing that Jesus is Christ. Well, that was very different from how things happened in the first great awakening. The first great awakening, you had preachers like Jonathan Edwards and and Jonathan Wesley and George Whitfield just proclaiming the truth and and God working in the hearts of people, convicting them in their hearts and and begging for forgiveness of sins. And and so to your point, you know, when we when we give the message, we don't treat the results of that message as being dependent upon us. It is never dependent upon us. And, and when we start to get too tied into what the results are, even though we shared the truth, and even though we did it in the most humble and gentle manner we could, when we get too tied up into that, we start to think in terms of methods. We yeah. start to think that we have something to do with convincing them and winning them over. So, what is it that I can do to help, uh, help win them over? And and so that's what leads to compromise of the message. That's what leads to seeker sensitive uh, messages, uh, churches. That's what leads to churches uh, using secular music for worship, turning into an entertainment affair when churches look more like rock concerts than they do actual sanctuaries where they're worshiping the true God. Um, all, all these things we we have to be mindful of. And and this is where and we we did that whole series on Calvinism and Arminianism. And and sometimes people will say, well, none of this is it really important. Just preach the God. Well, I, I would say this is where it does become important, because if you understand the sovereignty of God and salvation, then you can trust in the sovereignty of God, even if you don't get the response that you hope for. Jeremiah was faithful to the nation of Israel for close to 50 years and did not see a single person repent. But I guarantee you he's up in heaven um, and, and, uh, and he very well likely heard the words, well done, good and faithful servant when he went up there. Yeah. Well, and even look at Jesus's earthly ministry. I mean, yeah. he lost far more people than than he brought to oh, himself. Right. Right. Uh, right. Right. And and I mean, if you look at that, and and I think what's interesting about Jesus's ministry is he knew exactly what the result was going to be. Yeah. So it's not like you could argue, you know, it was a mistake or an error. Um, it, I mean, it it's Jesus. He's perfect in every way, right? And so he, yeah. you know, he's got all these follow all these people following him, and they're following him basically because, well, he's feeding them, and you know, he's teaching them things they haven't heard before, and they're you know all kind of blown away. And he stands up one day and he says, "Unless you drink my blood and eat." my flesh you had no part of me and and he loses thousands right right right. no he he won't be writing any church growth books on that way that way of doing things um and and yet 
that was the perfect response, the right thing to say. Now, there's some differences. It was, you know, Jesus. We we aren't Jesus. But the right. point is, if it were all about numbers, right, you, you just can't find that anywhere in Scripture. And this is why, I mean, we're talking about these things and being winsome, and it all really ties back into pragmatism. I mean, that's the whole emphasis on being winsome right. is mm-hmm. because of pragmatism. Um, it, you know, what works, uh, if it works, do it, and we want to attract people to the church. Um, and so, don't use language that they don't like. Uh, don't talk about sin if they don't like it. It would soften the message, um, that kind of thing. So, ultimately, it's all born from 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 that sort of thing. Uh, but we just don't see that in Scripture, right? right. We, we see men who love God, who love people, but their love for people is demonstrated in their willingness right. to call them to repent. Right. Yeah, so if you're using the word winsome to describe being gentle and humble, but still proclaiming the truth, um, then you have our full support. So we're not saying that everyone who uses the word winsome is giving into pragmatism, but if you do it to the extent where you start to compromise the truth and you stop trusting in the word of God, then it is pragmatism. Um, And this is where, as we mentioned at the start, um, it's helpful to really go back more to biblical terminology, uh, being humble, being uh, respectful, and and all those kinds of things. Yeah, and I think, you know, again, looking at the actual definition, um, again, I think we should just stop using that term. Um, But but the the definition being attractive or appealing, uh, we, we don't want attractive or appealing, we want power. Right and and what does Paul say? Say he's not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power unto mm-hmm. salvation. Right, he's not talking about being attractive. He's not talking about being appealing. God is the one who makes the message attractive and appealing for those who He's regenerated. God is the one who does that. We, we cannot do that, um, and, and so we just have to be faithful with the message, and we have to make sure we're presenting the message out of the right heart. And the heart being, we want to see souls saved, right? Uh, we we want to see right. people come to yeah, Christ. Yeah, and, and you said exactly, and 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 you said something earlier. You you said you know in today's age, Jesus, we wouldn't have Jesus write our church growth strategies, and and that's really to our condemnation, right? I mean, because yeah. we we should be following the the model of Jesus Christ, and when we think about okay, what was it that Jesus Christ did? Um, to to help win over sinners. Well, what he did well, was that he brought the message to those who needed to hear it. Um, he, he said, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So, he was willing to dine with the tax collectors and, and, the, and, and the prostitutes and all that. That doesn't mean he went into their environment and engaged in their activities, but he was willing to dine with them uh, in order to share the truth with them. Now, what he was not willing to do was to compromise on the truth. Yeah. And so, you brought up that example when Jesus said, you must um, eat my flesh and, and drink of my blood. That comes in John chapter 6. And that was after he had fed the 5,000, which if you really are just counting people, it's closer to fifteen to 20,000. Yeah. And then by the end of that chapter, and especially in chapter 6, verse 66, it says many of his disciples, okay, people who identified themselves as Jesus' disciples, withdrew and were no longer walking with him. So, Jesus never tried to win people over when they didn't like what Jesus said. Instead, he actually doubled down. Um, he would double down on the truth and and share more of the truth, which would end up driving even more people away. And even 
going forward to John chapter 9, that's the blind man that uh, has been blind from birth. He heals him. And they're in this back and forth where the religious leaders are trying to figure out how is it that this blind man was able to receive um, his sight. They, they did not want to, um, they did not even want to confess that Jesus is a prophet, let alone the Christ. Um, but that blind man, uh, when Jesus went to go see him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? And the blind man said, who is he, Lord, that I may believe? And Jesus said, you are, you're looking at him and you've been talking to him. And what, what happens is he, he says, I believe, Lord. And then he worshiped, right? And it's a beautiful picture that in the midst of all these Jews who continue to argue about him and debate about him and disbelieve him and, and seek to kill him, you have this one blind man that once once he recognizes who Jesus is, he says, I believe, and then he just worships. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and so, I, I think we've got to just go back to asking, are we being faithful to Scripture? Um, stop trying to redefine who believers are in the eyes of the world, right? We want to get the gospel message out there. We want to call sinners to repent. There are various means and methods and modes to do that that are appropriate um, and, and that would be biblical. Uh, we, we've got to use wisdom. We need discernment uh, when we do that, but we, we can't shrink back and ever think, oh, well, if I talk about this thing, they won't like the gospel, um, because that almost right. presupposes that it's us doing the Holy Spirit's work, as though yeah. if we make it attractive enough, they'll they'll come to Christ, right? And and you've talked about that. Um, and just thinking about the, some other things uh, that we see in Scripture, I mean, Jesus never shrank back from talking about sin. I, I mean, this was a primary right. message. Yeah. I mean, it, his ministry opens by telling us that he came preaching repentance, right? R repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. I mean, repentance is specifically dealing with the, the issue of sin. Um, and, and a lot of guys bring up the issue with the woman caught in adultery, yeah. which is fascinating because they focus on everything except uh, what Jesus told her at the end, right? Right. B because he did keep her from being stoned, absolutely. And that was an absolute act of compassion, sure. Uh, um but he did not let her leave without addressing her sinfulness and yeah. giving her a command, right? Go and sin no more. Um, no more. And, right, right. Right. And, and so, so he addresses that uh, and he never shrinks back from it. And then we have, of course, other instances where, I, I mean, it, now it's to fulfill uh, uh, prophecy to be sure, but you've got Jesus, you know, taking the time to fashion a whip. And goes into the temple and overturns uh, the the tables and whips yeah. people out of mm -hmm. the temple. I, I I don't know what you do with that if your goal is just to be winsome because I, I guarantee none of those people appreciated that very much. Um, it, it, you know, and that was a and you can't say that it was an unthoughtful, unprovoked activity. Um, it, Jesus took the time to make the whip. Yeah. He's all. He's also fully God, so he knew exactly what he was doing. Um, his responses to the Pharisees, you know, you whitewash tombs. I mean, again, we see that there's a time for difficult language. There's a time for hard language. Now, uh, obviously, oftentimes it's to false teachers and those hurting uh, the church. I mean, the the Bible is full of very hard language against false teachers, but false teachers are still people, right? Yeah. And so there's appropriateness to that. The whole book of Jude, I mean, you get to the end of the book of Jude and 
I mean, you never need to know the biblical languages to understand Scripture. Uh, scripture is, is, is clear on, on the face. But it is interesting because some of the language um, used in the book of Jude, which is basically to describe how filthy false teachers are, uh, gets to the end of the book of Jude and talks about dealing with the false teachers who are the most deceived, the most deceptive, and deceiving people the most. And it says to deal with them as though they have like soiled underwear, basically. Hmm. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, it's it's a bit of a disgusting picture, and yeah. it's it's mm-hmm. it's not very winsome, right? right. Um, and and so. Yeah, and so mark we, and avoid. Uh, yeah, that's essentially it. Mark and avoid. Yeah, and and then you know we also have uh, the passage that people also bring up. Well, what about you're supposed to uh, be known for your love? Okay, well, read the rest of that passage. Uh, yeah, John chapter thirteen. Uh, they you they will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. One another. So who's the one another? Yes. It's not the unbelieving the, world. Right. Right. It's, it's talking about the church. It's talking about those who are followers of Jesus Christ. And you see that example in just following um, the, the ministry of Paul, because Paul, at some point, he, he was raising money for the poor in Jerusalem, but it wasn't just the poor in general. It was specifically the poor saints uh, yeah. in Jerusalem. Um, so this is not to say that we shouldn't um, help the poor and the needy in society in general, but that should be driven by the desire to share the gospel with them. We are first and foremost, though, called to take care of one another within the household of God, the family of God. And those who are outside should be able to see that love, not necessarily your love for them. Uh, of course, they you know, you want them to be able to see that as well. But first and foremost, they need to see your love for one another. Um, and, and that's how they will know that you are Jesus' disciples. Let, let me take this even a, a little bit closer to what we're experiencing today, because you had brought up uh, Tim Keller. And, and I do want to address this a little bit, because when we talk about uh, winsomeness and, and especially nuance, you know, what, what we're seeing is um, people like Tim Keller that really push what I would call this kind of third wayism, right? So he, um, and especially when it comes to politics, um, you know, and it's not our goal to be political, but he'll say, don't side with this side or that side, but choose a third way. And and, and this is really driven by this desire not to offend anyone. You don't want to offend anyone. Um, and this becomes a big topic, for instance, when we're talking about the whole abortion discussion. You know, so, so don't talk about abortion or, or what the correct policies are or what the correct positions are and all that. But instead, choose this third way where you just don't address it. And instead, seek to not offend anyone until you can just get, get them to gospel. And, um, and, and that's, that's the problem because now we start to give in to methods. Um, I think we start to give in to methods. We start to worry too much about what people will say in response to the truth. Yes, we do want to give them the gospel, but we don't sacrifice truth um, on the way to giving people the gospel. Um, if people are offended by our positions, well, Herod was offended at John the Baptist, right? When John the Baptist said, it's yeah. unlawful for you to take this woman. So we, we continue to stand upon truth. And, and by the way, I also believe that's how the church functions as salt and light. Uh, we not only bring the gospel, but look, we, we point out the ways in which society is going the wrong way. And, uh, and then we, we call it out. Um, now, we have the freedom to do that here. We may not always have that freedom. If you were in, for instance, the communist uh, country of China, you're not going to have the same kind of freedoms and you're going to have to be more selective about what you say and how you say it. Um, but we don't sacrifice uh, the truth in order to think that we're going to win more people because that's exactly how society continues to degrade and spiral downwards um, to a point where, uh, where, where God's law, God's word is, is dishonored. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I think 
<clears throat> if we go back and look at just the first century church, um, I, I mean, why is it that Christians were persecuted so much? It wasn't because the message they brought was very attractive or appealing to those whom they were bringing it to, right? right? Uh, and, it, you know, if you, ever, if you have any doubts about this, you know, pick up a copy of uh, the, the, the Book of Martyrs, Fox's Book of Martyrs, and you'll, you'll find over and over again um, accounts of men who were faithful, who loved um, their fellow man enough to call them to repentance, and then they died because of it. They, they, they were martyred because of it. It's a hard book to get through. If you, if you haven't read through Fox's Book of Martyrs, you, you ought to. Um, it's impactful. But, but that's not, so that's not the goal. The goal is to be faithful, right? The goal is to be faithful to Scripture. And so uh, use wisdom, absolutely. Um, it, you know, if you have 10 minutes with someone, uh, what you share with them is going to be different than, you know, if they're your neighbor, um, and so we've absolutely we we've got to uh, use the wisdom God's given us. We use our surroundings. Um, you, you know, we can do those things, witness in different ways, in different shapes, in different forms. That's all fine. But what we can never do is be worried about the response. What we have to be worried about is: are yeah. are we being biblically accurate in our presentation of the gospel? Are we making the the, the issue of sin clear, are we making the person and work of mm-hmm. Christ clear and our need for him? Um, and, and if we're doing those things and we can say, you know, with Colossians 3.12, you know, I'm operating with a heart of compassion and humility and gentleness, then, then you're good to go. And, and other believers around you um, will, will give, you know, will, will give support. Uh, and, and we'll encourage you in that. Um, and so I think that's what we got to look at, look at. We've got to get away from pragmatism. We've got to get away from, you know, the third wayism that you're talking about, this idea that we just want to be in a neutral territory, because here's the reality. There are only two groups of people in this world, those who are children of God and those who are children of wrath. And as a child of wrath, they will hate children of God. And so we, right. are in, we are in a war. There's no neutral territory. Right. Um, and so let's look to scripture. Let's be biblical uh, and stop trying to find ways to dampen God's word. God's word is written the way it is because it has the power of God. And that alone is what is uh, going to open people's eyes up along with the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. So let's not be ashamed of the gospel the way it's given. Yeah, know the truth, um, be a student of the Bible, understand God's will and and purpose as revealed by his word, and stand upon that truth regardless of how it's seen. That's the problem with third wayism is that it's dictated upon uh, what people perceive to be one side or the other. Who cares what people perceive? Just stand upon the truth. It might be seen as right-wing extremism. It might be seen as something in the middle. It might be seen on the left. Wherever it's seen, it doesn't matter. Just stand upon the truth regardless of how people view it. Yeah, we're all going to be loved by someone. You're either going to be loved by the world or you're going to be loved by God, and you can't have both. So choose. Till next time, let the truth be known. 
The Truth Be Known podcast is a theologically driven, gospel-centered program serving the body of Christ by bringing biblical truth to bear on issues facing the church today. Subscribe to the Truth Be Known podcast by using the podcast app on your Apple or Android device or listen online at strivingforeternity.org in the podcast section.